I'm Colby Spencer, and this is Vantropolis. This is Vantropolis, a podcast about the happenings, the goings-on, and the general day-to-day life and antics of the underslept masses working in Vancouver's film industry. I'm no expert. I'm just nosy. And if you are too, let's do this. I caught up with costume designer Elisa Swanson at a time of both beginnings and endings. She had just wrapped work on season one of the TV series So Help Me Todd, and the Writers Guild of America strike had just started in its place, grinding film work to a screeching halt for the foreseeable future. In this time of limbo, I was lucky enough to sit down with Elisa and learn all about one of the most fascinating departments in the film industry. Elisa Swanson is an award-winning costume designer and a film and television veteran with over 25 years of industry experience. Knowing her calling early on, she moved to Los Angeles, California after high school, where she studied and received a BFA in fashion design and marketing. She then returned to Vancouver, BC and started her costume design career, where she's worked on television series like The 100, Once Upon a Time, and Firefly Lane, to feature films such as The Snow Walker, which earned her a much-deserved Leo Award for Best Costume Design. Elisa and I discuss how she and her team bring costume concepts to life, from design and sketching to sourcing and construction, and then right onto set, where you're never free of real-time wardrobe adjustments and repairs. Try sewing a loose button back onto an actor while 60 crew hover. Elisa also gives back in so many ways as well, with mentorship and workshops. And she's also currently the president for CAFTCAD, the Canadian Alliance of Film and Television Costume Arts and Design, a not-for-profit organization that promotes learning, networking, and achievements of Canadian costume design. Here she is. Elisa, hello. Hello, how are you? I am fantastic, and welcome to Vantropolis. Thank you so much for coming and being on my podcast today. Well, I appreciate the invite, so thank you very much. I feel like you have a little downtime now. You've finished up a show, which we're going to get into, and then sort of uh, notwithstanding the whole Writers Guild, the whole strike, has allowed a lot of downtime for some people at this time, right? That is correct. We um, were planning on going back to season two of So Help Me Todd starting prep June 14th, but uh, we will see what happens. And there is also a possible DGA and possible actor strike SAG coming up as well. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real year of strikes. Well, it's interesting because it is cyclical and it has been about seven years, I think, since the last one maybe even longer. And after a while, people just sort of get tired of being bullied around and pushed around and uh, stand their ground. Yeah, 100%. I personally love to see it. But you know, my husband works in film. So maybe selfishly, I just like having him home a lot right now. Um, But I'm in full support. So we'll see what happens. Um, so as I, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you are a costume designer, you're a veteran, uh, you've been in the industry for over 25 years and I would love to, usually I kick these off and I really just love to hear your journey to film. It's, it ends up being such a really cool and interesting story, how everyone finds this industry and, and how they travel through it. So I would love to hear kind of how you figured out you wanted to do this and and the path at the very beginning. It is an interesting one for me, actually, because I am one of the few people I know who wanted to do this as a job uh, very early on. I, my family was very much into films. We didn't watch a lot of TV growing up other than The Muppet Show on Sunday nights. 
Uh, but we watched movies constantly. And I remember mid-80s when uh, Amadeus Mozart came out, followed by Dangerous Liaisons. I was absolutely in love with the costumes. I also, you know, huge Star Wars fan, so would run around the house pretending I was Princess Leia uh, on a regular basis. Who didn't, right? Exactly, who didn't. Alice in Wonderland was also a big one. And I even as a young child, would name my dresses that I would wear for certain occasions. Like I had my Alice in Wonderland dress. I had my special Easter dress. I had my tea party dress. Notice there's a theme there. And then when I got into high school, I started acting. I got into theater. And to be honest, I really, really wanted to be an actor for a very long time. It was the 90s when I graduated, when skinny, 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 skinny was in, which I am not. Uh, I'm not big, but I'm not Kate Moss then. So I remember my dad being very pragmatic. A, he was a businessman. And he's like, it's not that I don't trust that you're a good actress. I just don't trust other people to see it. So I don't think you should go into acting. And being that they, at the time, were nice enough to pay for my university education, uh, I decided I needed to do something else. And it was about the same time I got into sewing, because uh, we started thinking about education for me early in my high school years. Yes, um, privilege there, for sure. It was never... a uh, but I wasn't going to secondary education. And about grade 10, after I was doing advanced projects in sewing and building my Halloween costumes out of wedding gown patterns with wedding gown material, making all of my teachers freak out, I thought, well, maybe I should go into costume design. And my dad said, that's great, but you also have to have business. So we ended up sending me to a university in Los Angeles that did both. So I got a degree in fashion design with a secondary degree in marketing. And then my teachers loved me so much. And because I was so interested in costume design, they actually developed a couple of courses for me specifically geared towards costumes. So my degree has with an emphasis in costume design at the end of it, which isn't like they just put that on there for me. That's amazing. So I have so many questions. So first of all, did you grow up in Vancouver, like in BC? Yes, I grew up in North Delta, actually. And when I think about this, and I think about your journey, and obviously, a true natural, you obviously knew early on, like you say, did you think about film and TV? Or did you just think about costumes in terms of like, theater, or I guess because you were watching movies, you did, but there wasn't a lot of resources at that time, would you say, to be able to know that there was a path to that directly in terms of schooling? That is correct. However, it was always movies. I always wanted to design for movies, not even TV, because we didn't watch TV. It was movies that I wanted to design for. Um, it was costume movies, whether it was period or fantasy or sci-fi. That was specifically what I wanted to do. And because we watched so many movies and I actually paid attention to the credits, you know, I knew there were I knew there was such a thing as a costume designer. So that's specifically, if you asked me in grade 10 what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said I want to be a film costume designer. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, reading the credits. Who knew? Who knew that's how you'd find the job titles, right? Exactly. So what was moving to L.A. like? like did you go alone on your own or what? 
I did. I was 17. I graduated a year early, um, not because I was super, super smart, but because uh, I'd started my schooling in Calgary. And for whatever reason, the cutoff date was January 31st instead of December 31st. And my birthday is January 31st. So I graduated at 17. And I went down to LA. Apparently, my mom cried for about three months after they dropped me off. <laughs> um, they did put me in the dorms that first year. So, you know, there was there was the dorm mother who was there. And there was like four girls to a apartment with two bedrooms in it. And it was it was mixed dorm rooms because it was a smaller private college. So there were guys in there as well as girls, but obviously all the girls were in one room and all the guys were in another room. And as the year progressed, it's amazing how many people dropped out. And um, so by the end of the first year, it was just myself and another girl who got to share probably the biggest apartment in the whole building, which was lovely. And then after that, like second and year I had a roommate but it was off it was out of the dorms we just got an apartment and then my last two years there I just had an apartment on my own and yes living in LA was awesome and awful all at the same time (laughs) I feel like that's a normal experience awesome and awful at the same time LA you have to be careful where you drive that is absolutely true Um, the food there was awesome there were always really cool places to eat and fun little places to go. It was very multicultural in that there were a lot of, I was used to going to school with a lot of South Asian kids and Asian kids here. And there I got to meet a lot of Latin kids and a lot of black people, which there's not a lot here in Vancouver, at least in my high school, there wasn't. That being said, there was also, it was noticeably more segregated when you were in different parts of the city, which I found even in the 90s, I was like, oh, this just seems so wrong. Seems so wrong. Um, the clubs were awesome. Oh my God, the cl- the clubs were the best. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you didn't just go to class, did you? Yeah. No, though I was, you know, uh, obnoxiously good student. Yeah. Obnoxiously. And any celebrity sightings? Any celebrity sightings during your time down there? Yes, I danced with uh, one of the Millie Vanillis. I'm not sure which one. Well, that is a throwback. Rest in peace, right? I think both of them are gone now. Yeah, I um, I danced with one of them at a club. Uh, I bumped into Shannon Doherty at another club. Not particularly friendly experience, but, you know, we were all trying to look hot and pick up guys. So that makes sense. <laughs> I um, got flirted with by LL Cool J once. Sweet. Yes. I used to. So I don't remember how this happened. I really don't. But somehow I started getting invited to after parties for the Oscars and the Grammys. I was at a club one night I think I'd had too much to drink, which is why I don't exactly remember how this story goes. But I ended up getting the card of this one guy who's about the same age as me, maybe five years older. And he was like a promoter to these after parties. And so every time there was an after party, I would get free tickets. And so it would be me and I'd take myself and, you know, a friend or two. And the after parties weren't like the Vanity Fair parties. These were like B-list, C-list parties, but we would go. We'd get to go to all these fun parties and Polly Shore, like Polly Shore was at some of them. Like this is kind of the the level of party we'd go to. So that was 
fun. And I mean, I used to go to those all the time because every Grammy, every Oscar, I would go to one of those parties. And then the other thing I used to do in universities, we had something called the Dressers Club where we would volunteer to go backstage at the fashion shows and dress the models. So I was always, so I was in, I did Barney's and I did a whole bunch of boutiques on Beverly Hills or like Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills and would be the dresser. And so saw models all the time. And I have, you know, they are so like actors are thin, but actors are generally like, five feet to five foot five thin. These are all five ten, five eleven, six foot thin. And I remember dressing them just thinking like if I blow on you, you're gonna fall over. But my head is also at your waist. How is this how is this possible? Yeah, a different kind of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just so tall, so lean. Like they turned sideways and you could still see what was on the other side of them. Yeah, super healthy, super healthy industry kids. (laughs) No, and then we all wondered why we ended up with eating disorders. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I I feel like you could chalk up those club nights to work experience. Come on, you know, it was a bit of an an evening internship. Let's pull it as an angle. Um, So when you were done down there and that whole experience, like you obviously came home and then what, what did you do? What did you, what were your next steps? Well, we knew there was a film industry here. We knew it wasn't that big. I tried to stay down there, but uh, INS said that, you know, all you had to be able to do to be a costume designer was to draw and everybody could draw, quote unquote. So I didn't get to stay. So I came home and one of my parents' um, really good friends had a daughter who was a makeup artist in the industry. And so they got me her number and she gave me two other numbers one was tracy jeffries who is a producer in town and the other was tracy bolton who was actually a costume designer in town and i called both of them and had conversations with them and they said you need to get into iatsi 891 which is the union up here and you know start taking that resume out and i believe it was through them that i learned about the BC Film Commission, where at the time you could, you could go to the BC Film Commission on Thursdays uh, in North Vancouver and pick up the film list. Now, I'm still living in North Delta. So every Thursday, I drive to North Vancouver and pick up the film list and then call all the production offices on there and ask if I could send my resume in. Yeah, see, I don't think kids remember the old days, right? Like, this is the Gen X experience of climbing through film. Yes. It's driving, it's papers, it's going to offices, it's using the telephone. Like, it was a different world. Fax machines. Yeah, fax machines. Oh, my gosh. I think the doctor's office still uses fax machines, and that's about it. So you're hustling. I was hustling. I was totally hustling. I put my name in to apply for IATSE. And I went in for my interview and conveniently, one of the women who was interviewing me, I had worked for one summer in her, she had kind of like a mini sweatshop in her basement. She had put a little line of like Jersey knit wear together. And my girlfriend from high school's mom knew her. And so she hired my, my friend, Sheila. And Sheila's like, well, if you really want somebody who knows how to sew, you need to hire Elisa. So the two of us worked for her this one summer. Well, she had continued and gone on to costumes 
And she was one of the people who were interviewing. So she remembered my sewing skills from grade nine. Wow. She remembered me from grade All of this helps, right? It's all who you know. Of course it does. Yeah. At the time, they were also crewing up for a really huge show, one of the biggest shows that had ever come here called uh, The 13th Warrior. We, at the time, it was called Eaters of the Dead, based on the novel by Michael Crichton and starring Antonio Banderas. Because it was a build show and um, period fantasy-ish, they needed a million people in the costume department more than existed at the time. So they sort of let in a huge amount of people into the costume department. And because I knew how to sew, they brought me in conveniently. She also, the woman who let me in was one of the women who was working on eaters of the dead in a hiring capacity. So she called me to hire me in sewing. So I went in for my awesome. Yeah, right? Uh, However, I don't like and don't tend to use industrial machines. I did 99% of all, I know how to use them, but I did 99% of all my sewing on um, a home machine and did it really well, so it didn't matter in school. But here it was industrial, and I was not fast enough. Like, I was fast when I was in university. I would kick everybody everybody's butts at getting projects done on time but (laughs) put me in this like manufacturing style sewing and I could not keep up at all so this one day she comes up to me as I'm like desperately trying to do these viking um, belt loops over and over and over again and getting like four pairs of pants to my neighbor's 12 pairs of pants done and she's like uh Elisa have you ever had any experience doing truck And I'm like, yes, I have. Because when I was in university my last year for my internship, they got me an internship with a costume designer in LA. And I went and worked pro bono on a pilot called Gun with James Gandolfini and um, Rosanna Arquette. Way back, this is like 96, um, because I'm old. And... I had worked on that and the the set supervisor sort of trained me how to do truck and trained me how to do set. And, and so I worked on the show for only a week, but my first day was 23 hours and 45 minutes long. Oh my gosh. So I got, you know, a normal person's three months worth of work experience in one week. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's a way to start, like 23 hours. And just quickly tell us like truck versus set, what does that mean? All of our costumes that are going to be worn on camera go into what is a costume truck because it needs to be movable from location to location. And the person who runs the truck is the person who steams everything in the morning, puts the right costume in the room when it's time to get changed, A, first thing in the morning, but also during the day when they, because if we're shooting on location, say at a hotel, and we are starting with the ballroom scene, so everybody's in ball gowns, but later in the day, we're going to go up to the hotel room, because we're in this one location, we're not going to go from there to the studio to a restaurant, and then the next day, come back to the, the hotel to shoot in the hotel room, we would do all of our hotel shooting at one time. So 
when they go from the ballroom to then go to their PJs to then later when they go into the restaurant down at the bottom of the hotel and they're wearing just normal clothes, somebody has to put those outfits, prep them, and then put them in the the change room so that the actor goes into the right outfit. Right. Uh, and that is what, that's basically what the truck person does. They also, I mean, that's a really simplifying version of their job. They need to make sure if, if anything changes, like an actor decides they don't want to wear those earrings and they change them out, that that is recorded in the notes. They make sure that when at the end of the night, laundry is either done on the truck or if it's dry cleaning, it gets sent out to dry cleaning. They are the ones that make sure it comes back from dry cleaning. They're the make sh- they make sure that what the actors have to wear the next day is actually on the truck, prepped and ready the day before. So they're the ones that sort of start the day and make sure that the day runs smoothly before anybody else even touches them, them being the actor. And so when you were doing this and you kind of got to go to truck, you did you prefer that? Obviously, because they were industrial machines, but generally as a role, as you were kind of moving along? You know, interestingly, I, I have done every position in the costume department at least once. Uh, with the exception of supervisor, only because that's a newer role to us in Vancouver. And truck is one of my favorites. I don't like being on set. I'm not a set. I've done it. I'm not a set supervisor. Um, I wear hearing aids. And I find when there's a lot of noise going on, it's really hard to sort of determine where things are coming from. And you have to have your head on a swivel and people are always yelling for you and uh, you always have to be paying attention and then you're not. And then it's just like dead. You're just waiting. The actors have gone back to change. You don't leave set. You hang out and you sort of twiddle your thumbs in between. So my note taking was impeccable because it gave me something to do, but I'm too type A and that I need to always be doing something. Ask my husband. I'm never off, off. I always, oh, I'm going to write a script today kind of thing. That's me. So (laughs) to be on set and to be like on and then, okay, you've got 15 minutes to figure out what to do with yourself. I just, I, 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 I couldn't handle it. It made, it made me crazy, crazy. And then when you're on, you're so on in like, oh my God, a button popped off and we need to roll. At least to get this button on now. And you're like trying to sew a button on with everybody staring at you because now you're the one they're waiting for. And, you know, it's on an actor. You're trying not to stab them. You're shaking and it's from the adrenaline, not because you're nervous, but then everybody's looking at you like you're crazy. Oh my God, I hate it. I hate everything about it. <laughs> I feel like every department has a horror story of being stared at on set. No matter the skill set, like lighting, they stare at you while the light's not working. You know, costumes, they're staring at you. Sound, something's wrong, they're all staring at you. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's it's a really high-pressure place to be. I, obviously, I work well under high pressure, and I like pressure. But I like pressure from the, I've got to get these outfits out, and I'm doing it within the confines of my department with the confines that my department has put around it, not all these weird random variables that come from being on set and having to deal with all these other departments um, and then, you know, actors and directors on the day. So I, as a costume designer, because I dislike that so much, really try when I'm designing and, and organizing to be so uber organized for my set supervisor 
that things can't go sideways on set because nobody can say they didn't see something. Like I make sure everybody knows what the actor's wearing for every scene. So sound can't at the last minute go, well, I can't wire that. Or the director can't say, well, I never approved that. Or props can't say, well, the purse I have, which actually I do purses, but so the watch I have doesn't go with that outfit. Nobody can say that because I make sure everybody knows what everybody is wearing at all times because I don't ever want to put my set supervisors in some of the positions that I've been in. That's kind of you, right? You learn from that and then make it better for the next next folks. So, so I, I want to get into the role, obviously, and, um, you know, we were kind of talking about how you're, how you're kind of climbing up and going through the ranks. And I mean, your resume is very impressive and very uh, long. So we obviously won't be able to cover all of that. And it's funny because I look at some of your credits and I, when my husband and I started dating, he was on Snow Buddies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he worked, he worked on all the buddies, the space buddies, the snow buddies. All the buddies with the dogs. Yes. Um, so it's funny. I'm sure you crossed paths as well as Robson Arms. But as you started moving up through the ranks and going through all of these shows, like, and there's tons of them, um, you know, and we can get up till today uh, with So Help Me Todd is the most recent. And I'm a little curious also about Firefly Lane just because of the time jumps, right? It kind of follows friends through a, a longer amount of time, which is kind of interesting, obviously, for costumes. But as you moved up, like, tell me a little bit about that role and how it changed. And also, I would love to just talk about how it starts in your department, like how you, how you get engaged and what happens from there within the whole, you know, realms of a show. Sure. Let's let's start there. So usually what happens is somebody calls me and says, I have this show coming up and we're looking for a costume designer. And here's, you know, some bits, some bits of information. Are you interested? Are you available? And then I do a little bit of extra hunting with any information they've given me to see if I am actually interested. Uh, that is, if I am available. And then I usually write back, e- even if I'm not sure I'm interested, I always, you know, respond and say, yes, I'd, I'd love to read the script. Do you want to send it to me? So what usually happens is they send me an NDA, uh, which I sign, and then they send me the script and I read it. And then they put together an interview if I'm still interested at that point. And for the interview, you know, I've done, I've done interviews a million ways. I've gone into interviews without anything other than having read the script, mostly because I've been working at the same time and just have not had any time, or they called me today and want to interview me tomorrow. I've gone into interviews full on with like watercolor illustrations that I've sat down and done and uh, mood boards and uh, whole story arcs for different characters. I've, I've done the gambit. I have gotten uh, shows both ways. Uh, not, not as many when there's no prep work, I'll be honest, but every once in a while, if for whatever reason they knew they wanted me to start with, I have managed to get shows without any prep work. It does help if you do a little bit. <laughs> it makes you look like you're interested. <laughs> Good advice. Good advice. Everyone prep. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It does help. It's the same as, you know, everybody likes their ego strokes. So if you go in and, and you've happened to look up the director and you know that they've worked on a show and you happen to like that show, mentioning it never hurt anybody. It's the same with me. I've had people come in who you can tell have done some research on me and they know the shows I've 
I've done. And that's always, it's not even just an ego stroke. It's just like, oh, you took the time to do mm-hmm. research, which means you're actually interested as opposed to somebody who comes in who doesn't know that I've done Firefly Lane. And it's like, well, you know, if you Google search me, it's like one of the first things that comes up. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just Elisa Swanson and there's this whole bunch of stuff that pops up. It's not like you have to dig for any of it. So uh, I find it definitely, you know, I appreciate it if somebody's gone and taken the time to do some research before they come in for an interview. Uh, so I assume other people feel the same way. Yeah. So you do that and then you get the show. And then once you get the show and every time you get a new show, you're in a new place, right? You've got a new studio you're working out of, a new office you're working out of. So you haul all your stuff in and you set yourself up. Normally, we never have enough space for costumes ever, 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 ever. They just don't build studios to have enough space for us. But you know, we're, we're, we're used to it. Uh, so you move in, hopefully there's not a rat infestation and hopefully it's not in a dark, dank dungeon somewhere. Hopefully you have windows. You are always hoping for windows. Uh, it helps when you're looking at clothing. (laughs) You know what? I feel like that's not a lot to ask. Like, could I, could I have a window? It'd be great if I had some daylight. You'd think it wouldn't be a lot to ask, but sometimes it's like you're asking for Rumpelstiltskin to show up and, and spin some gold for you. (laughs) So then once you get started, I go back to the script. That's usually where I start from and just dissect that sucker like I'm in biology grade nine and pull it apart and and write questions and and prep mood boards and then have meetings and then re-prep mood boards because I have a different idea than what the director has or the producer has and then work on it until we're sort of all on the same page. And then hopefully they have cast. And then once they have cast, you start shopping. In the meantime, you know, people have been hired. So your department starts to get bigger and and people are being hired. Nowadays, most of the shows I work on, I have an assistant designer and I also have a costume supervisor. The assistant designer is the one who really helps me with the shopping and putting the looks together and getting the looks finalized and the lineup out. The supervisor is the person who keeps me on track with my budget and says, hey, you're spending too much money or you're not spending enough money. That never happens. And also does a lot of the hiring and decides what labor we need and where they need to be and when they need to start. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that used to be done by just, you and your assistant, but the shows have gotten bigger. They're, you know, even, even for an hour long show, it's all digital now. And because it is all digital, we see so much more. It's so much clearer to watch a movie. The screens that we watch them on, even at home are so much bigger that even for a TV series, it's like doing a movie every episode. And they expect that quality, which is all well and good, except most feature films, you've got, you know, a couple months prep and then six to eight months to shoot it, maybe more, maybe less. With TV series, we have eight days to prep it and eight days to shoot it. And while we're shooting it, we're prepping the next one. Yeah, it's such a different beast from from features, right? It's like a machine that just never stops pumping. That's right. It's exhausting. My question was too, I had a question while you were telling me all that is, 
how much of the stuff are you purchasing and how much are you sewing and making yourselves? And like, it does it depend on the show obviously as well? Well, it does depend on the show. It also kind of depends on the costume designer. I like to build. That's where I came from. I um, wanted to do merchant ivory films. I wanted to do big costume pieces. That was my goal. It is harder to do in Vancouver because we are the destination, which I didn't realize. Part of my wanting to be a costume designer is I wanted to travel the world and get to film in exotic locations. The most exotic I've ever been is Churchill, Manitoba. <laughs> hey, aren't there some some uh, polar bears up there? Polar bears and beluga whales. Yeah, Hudson Bay, right? Mm-hmm. But that being said, I've never, you know, I've never traveled to Bali to film or India or, you know, the Caribbean. And that's because we are a destination. You're coming up here to film here. And we don't have castles and we don't have ruins and we don't have all those beautiful things that are required for period pieces that take place in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. So I don't get to do those kinds of films. Um, and a lot of times when they do do those kinds of films here, if they do part of it, it's only a part and it's starting somewhere else. So very often they're not hiring a Canadian costume designer. They're hiring an American costume designer or a British costume designer that just comes out here for the parts that are done here. Right. Yeah. It's very sad. Well, the only good thing too, I guess, and we can get into it later, is like with parenthood and having a family, you know, you get to go to sleep at night at home, right? Versus being away from your family and close ones for months at a time. That's well, and that has definitely changed since becoming a mother. So my traveling to Bali is no longer as high on my list as it was once upon a time. But there was another part of that question. Oh, right. But because I like those kinds of shows and because I am a fashion designer by trade, I like to sketch. I like to pattern make. I understand how it works. I like fabrics. I like the creativity of inventing something new, whenever I can build, I do. So even for So Help Me Todd, which is contemporary, I actually convinced them to let me have a building room, not just an alterationist. And we build a lot of Marsha's outfits. Almost all of the dresses that her character wears are my design and we build in-house. Some of the suits... Particularly the skirt suits. I was really having a hard time finding as many skirt suits as I wanted for her. So we started building those and we built quite a few of the blouses. So I build more than probably the average costume designer does only because I like it. Yeah. And I was going to say, listen, I'm not a pro in any way, shape, or form about any of this. But I feel like when you look at Marsha's outfits on So Help Me Todd, you can tell that they are bespoke. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like you can, you can tell they're not off the rack. You know what I mean? And that's like from a, from a layman's point of view. Well, and some of them are, and it's funny because it's, it's how you put stuff together, right? So we have a Zara suit, just a Zara suit, but we put it with an $800 belt and then a $400 blouse. So it mixes it all up and it just makes it something unique and interesting. And I mean, half her shoes are from Aldo, but then the other half are Jimmy Choo. So, you know, you you kind of mix things up. And I like to put combinations together that aren't necessarily 
what somebody would think of when they see it. I like to be bold, as you can tell. And I, I can do that because it's a comedy. If it was a lawyer show that wasn't a comedy, forget it. She'd be in black and gray and navy. Yeah, right. Yeah, it fits the tone of the of the show, for sure. And what happens with those costumes? So now you've done season one, which was um, is, has wrapped and it's renewed for season two. And so are you, like, I know you're not working right now, but are you already thinking about using some of that stuff again? Does that happen or is it all net new or do you try to blend it in with the next season? Like, are you thinking about those things, thinking about the next season? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm even sketching already. I have pictures of all the fabrics that we didn't use and uh, have done some sketches ready to go so that when my cutter walks in, she's going to have like a pile of things to do. Uh, and the plan is, you know, every show has different budgets. Every show has different levels. Obviously, Emily in Paris, for example, has a huge budget. We have a okay budget. Yeah. Some seasons you get more um, and some seasons you stay the same. We're not necessarily going to be getting any more this next season. So there's a frugality that comes with that too, because I only have so much money to spend. So I believe there will be a lot of reuse, but in, but again, I'll mix it up. Like she'll never wear the same suit with the same blouse and we'll build new blouses probably like there'll be less reuse of the blouses because they were all so distinctive and it will be reused suits to the best of our ability. But, you know, we're still going to build new stuff for her, for sure. Yeah, that's fun, right? Thinking ahead. Bittersweet because you're supposed to be relaxing right now and be off, but you probably never stop thinking about it if you love it, right? Um, so, so what kind of advice would you have for someone that's thinking about going into this department? Like if you could give some of those pearls of wisdom because you are a veteran looking back over your career, what, what would you say stands out as advice? Well, there's a couple of things. There have been times I've gotten really frustrated with the industry and frustrated with sometimes it's been my lack of movement upwards. Lack of appreciation is big in our industry. Uh, you're expected to always be able to come through and you tend to hear about it when you don't come through the way they want and you tend not to hear about it when you do it right. And that can be very wearing and um, really hard to deal with on a regular basis. And that's not just for me, that's also for my crew. Like my crew will sometimes feel like they're unappreciated on set because it's like hurry up and go and go and go and go and go and you get it done on time and nobody bothers to say hey thanks for doing that thanks for going out of your way I realized the back of the pants split open thanks for you know making that happen super quick it's just like why did that take so long so it can wear on you it's changing because people get in trouble nowadays for you know screaming at you in the middle of set uh, because they're having a bad day yeah, and sort of all the other things, the naughty things that used to take place on a regular basis when I first started isn't allowed anymore, which makes it a little bit easier. But at the same time, like I say, they're expecting feature film quality every eight days. And sometimes you don't get your cast until two days before you start filming. And some days I literally feel like, well, are they dressed? Okay, great. Do I know what they look like? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. 
Small wins. Yeah. Is this ultimately what I wanted for that character? No, but they're, they've got clothes on their body. So off they go. And that can be draining, especially, you know, some people come into the job and it's a job. And then for some crazy people like me, there's a lot of us, it's sort of the be all end all. And we are trying to make our mark and we are trying to be excellent. And we are trying to produce the best every single time. And sometimes that's hard to do. And it's out of our hands why it's hard to do. It's last minute rewrites, last minute casting, actors coming in, not being the size they said they were for a fitting that happens all the time. Interesting. Does it really? That does happen all the time. Oh, it's worse since COVID. It's like nobody wants to uh, bite the bullet and actually look at a measuring tape. And and then, and it, it's always smaller. And it's like, guys, you're not, you know, we can't sausage you into something that's two sizes too small for you. And now we're giving you a complex. I'm not trying to have you come into my fitting room and have a complex. I want you to leave feeling really good about what you're wearing but I need the proper size to do that. <laughs> well, you know, you bring up a good point, too, in your department. I think hair and makeup, correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of the same. You're very close to the, to the leads and the actors compared to many other departments, right? You're interacting with them on a very close basis every single day. I have often said that I would have been better off getting a degree in psychology than a degree in fashion design. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you you don't get extra for that every day. No, no. In fact, my last line producer joke that I needed to put up the sign that, you know, from the Peanuts cartoons where it was like five cents for therapy and have like a little bucket outside my fitting room, except make it $50. And every time an actor goes in, they they, they tip me $50 if they're going to um, give me their whole backstory. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's part of the job. You know, what's funny is like, imagine if you're really not good at that, because it's sort of expected, as as you can see there. And it's like, what if you're really awful at human interaction, but a real like design savant, it would be an odd, you know, relation. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, because I sometimes I'm very right brain, left brain, I'm, I'm uh, down the middle. And I know, and I've worked with some and know some costume designers that are very right brain. And the stuff they come up with, I'm just like, geez, I thought what, like, wow, it's so creative. Why can't I be that creative? But at the same time, their crews are like crazy because it's so hard to keep up with somebody that's so right brain that there's no no left brain. It's all ideas, 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 ideas. And then the crew has to run around behind them and, and get it done on time and get it done the way it looks and fulfill all these wild ideas. Right. I really sometimes wish I was even more creative than I am. Sometimes I feel a little because I have so much technical knowledge of how a pattern goes together when I'm sketching and when I'm illustrating and when I'm designing an outfit, I'm actually already thinking about how the actor is going to get into it, how it's going to fit, where the darts are going to be, where I want the seam lines to be, as opposed to somebody that just sketches something fantastic. 
and leaves it up to somebody else to figure out where all those seams are going to go. It's kind of like an architect and it's like architect and home builder, right? Exactly. But my crew seems to appreciate the fact that I have a logical side because then I don't ever expect them to do something crazy so out of the box, but in like two hours. Yeah. And I think for film and TV, like it's a blessing you have that stuff to your point, right? Because it, it's, it's needed every single hour of the day. Yes, actually, it really is. And it's a busy hour every single hour of the day. <laughs> and so so do you have any costumes? And I know you don't, it's like your children, you don't want to pick favorites. But do you have any that stand out for you that are like real feather in your cap, no pun intended, unless it's props department putting the feather in the cap, um, that stand out for you as sort of your favorite pieces or something that you're really proud of and even to this day just still really love? Uh, yeah, I have a, quite a few actually, which I guess is good. I guess that's good. I um one I did the Snow Walker way back in two thousand one. Uh, how I got that job, I have no idea. I was really, really young and new and fresh in the industry, and probably because they weren't paying enough, and nobody who had any experience would take the job. To be perfectly honest, or they didn't have enough of a, a budget, and I just didn't know better. But um, I had to go up to Churchill, Manitoba. And I had to make uh, Kanala's parka, but I had to make it in the Inuit style. So we had an Inuit lady come in and sort of teach me the proper stitches and show me how to pound out the seams because it all had to be hand done. And she started it uh, with me, but then, you know, she wasn't able to stay because she had other jobs and other things to do. So I took it over and I built her parka and her pants pretty much myself by hand. And then when Barry Pepper came up, we had these sealskin boots that we had made by another Inuit lady, not from Churchill, Manitoba. We'd had them sent down from a very remote town somewhere up in the Arctic. And to be honest, at this point in time, I don't even remember the name of the town. And she'd sent us these sealskin boots, but they weren't exact matches. And he needed like six of them. And, you know, trying to explain exact match sometimes to creative people who build for the love of it is different than in film. But because we had to rotate these boots out for him, they had to be exactly the same. So I had to redo them. But he also didn't like how wide they were. He wanted them tapered in more because, you know, he's an actor and he had a specific look he wanted. So I had to then learn a proper waterproofing stitch to fix these with now seal skin is the one of the hardest fabrics to deal with there i mean you know those poor little guys they're they're out there to keep them warm and to you know insulate them so tough 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 sort of like dealing with stingrays stingrays have also have really really tough skin and so pliers and band-aids and thimbles were required for me to do this yeah. and just my fingers were bleeding and they ached and they hurt and I got them all done and they're they tan their hides differently than we do which keeps them soft and supple but that means that they also rot so all of the seal skin had to go into a freezer every night otherwise it would rot we had a very smelly fishy smelling uh freezer so we did these 
I did this waterproofing stitch and I remember Barry Pepper came back one day after being out on the tundra and he'd accidentally stepped in a puddle and he's like, damn girl. He's like, the water went into the boot and just never came out again. He said, so you have your waterproofing stitch down perfect because the water, it had splooshed over the top of the boot. So it had gone in and they had to then cut filming so that he could take the boot off and empty it out because it just like stayed there. So I was really proud out of that because a lot of that was left it was just me and my set supervisor until uh, we had one other cutter come up and join us so a lot of like James Cromwell was six foot six you can't buy 1950s clothes that fits a man who's six foot six so we made all of his pants we made all of his shirts we altered all of the suit jackets we even altered some of the ties so that they would be longer. And then we made John Grease a pair of jeans that were 1950s style with these beautiful darts in them. And he loved them so much that he took them with him because he was like, I've never found a pair of jeans that have fit me so well. So I'm really proud of that film. I'm impressed that I did it at I think I was 26 at the time. Probably the only reason I managed to get through is because I was 26 at the time. I would work until like four o'clock in the morning, walk home in broad daylight, watching out for polar bears. And then I would get back up at 6 a.m. Yep, two hours sleep. And then I would go back to work. And did you win a Leo Award for that, Elisa? I did. I did. Yeah. I didn't think you were going to say it, so I had to do it for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you won a Leo Award for Best Costume Design. I did. That's pretty amazing. Yes. And to be honest, of a, I mean, I've worked on a lot of shows since that have been creative and interesting and fun, but it was so much a, I did almost everything. I touched like everything in that show and I got no sleep that really if there was one show I've done <laughs> that I deserve that Leo award for that would probably be it for sure for sure for sure it's like the G.I. Jane of costume design right that's how you're going to remember that one yes absolutely I have one other costume that I'm super proud of it was for a mini series I did fantasy it was so exciting I got to do a fantasy mini series called Knights of Bloodsteel not really a watchable miniseries. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but the set deck in it was gorgeous. Our production designer was brilliant. The locations in it were some of the greatest locations that I have ever shot in in British Columbia. I highly recommend if you ever find it at three o'clock in the morning on the Sci-Fi Channel, which is generally when it's on, if it's on at all, uh, mute it. Don't try and listen to it. Just mute it and watch a little bit of it because it's quite stunningly beautiful. But we did this one outfit for our goblin, who was this beautiful statuesque lady who was tall. Her name was Heather Dorkson, and she was the bartender. But she also was on like the magical committee or the town committee or whatever it was. So I designed this beautiful leather piece that did up at the neck so it was like a high neck and then it came down and was cap sleeves but it was open sort of at the clavicle and then it was open and it cut under her arms around her back 
then came down her back. So there was like a spine piece and then it wrapped back around the front of her hips and then it did up down the front and it was one, it was leather. And then the cutter who I used, Leslie Cairns, of course, you, you can't get a piece of hide that, that's big, that is that big. So she came up with this beautiful um, checkerboard design to utilize all the pieces of the hide. And it had a train to it. And then what we did is we gave her bustiers and sleeves. And the sleeves snapped into the leather piece. And then the bustier, would she would put that on. And then there was a hook in the back to help hold up the leather because it was so heavy. But we would change out the bustier and the sleeves. So when she was like at the coronation ceremony, she wore the fancy bustier. And when she was the barkeep, she was in the basic bustier. And then when she was at one of her council meetings, she kind of had a, a middle of the road bustier with the sleeves to match. And I still actually have that costume because it's one of my faves. You know what I was going to say when you were telling me all of this, I wonder where it is today. That's what I was, I would literally wondered where some of these pieces end up. I have no idea where all the stuff from the Snowwalker is, but yes, that piece is in my basement. Well, if Barry's listening and he has any of the boots, like give us a holler because love to see if they're still waterproof. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, they'd be rotten by now. Yeah, probably. Maybe he's got them in his deep freeze somewhere. You never know. I know we're running out of time, and I mean, I could talk to you forever because it's just so interesting, and I never knew anything about your department. So it's just, it's so cool to just look under the hood and get all of the details of how it works. I know, too, like, you're so generous with your time, as if you have any extra, but all the stuff that you do in terms of, like, you judge for certain, like, cons, fan cons and things. And, and, and tell me a little bit about CAFCAD as well. I'm the president of CapCat now. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Congrats. Well, yeah, you know what? If you go far enough up, suddenly you're like at the top. You're like, oh, wait, there's nobody else. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, um, I heard about CapCat for the first time when they did their CapCat Awards back in 2017. And I submitted, I think it was Once Upon a Time I submitted for that. Or was it The 100? I can't even remember now. Uh, it was one of the two or maybe both, and I got nominated for, I believe it was the 100. And so I went out to Toronto, and I went to the CapCat Awards. And at the time, it was mostly Toronto-based, because that's where it had started. There was Cicada, um, uh, Gersha Phillips, and Antoinette Messem, all really huge costume designer names now from Canada, had started it about 15 years ago. I think we're 15 years old now, and like somebody's backyard. And... Then Joanna Sequema came along and decided, you know, we're never going to win awards at the Emmys um, or the Oscars on average because we don't do those kinds of big shows that get nominated. She's like, let's do an award show, not just for the costume designers, but for the cutters and the textile artists and the breakdown artists and our illustrators, because as far as we know, there's nowhere else that you can go and submit and possibly nominated for an award for doing illustrations. And yet that's its own art form. Like I illustrate, but you know, I illustrate enough to get by. I don't illustrate the way Keith Lau illustrates or Andy Poon illustrates or Terry Pitts illustrates. That's just like 
knock your socks off um, pieces of art individually. So she started basically this award ceremony with CAFCAD. And so I went to that. And then I was at a different event for women in film and another fellow costume designer, Lorraine Carson came along and said, Hey, I want to nominate you for the board. And I'm like, sure. Why, why not? As they say, if you want something done, get a busy person to do it. So I got nominated and got elected onto the board. Uh, and that was three terms ago. And at the beginning, of course, this is pre-COVID. And so they would put me on speakerphone and put this phone in the middle of a table in their meetings that they were having in person. And I would try and hear what was going on. It was really awfully hard, I'll be honest. And then we got through that term. Did I do a second term? No, I think it was still that term. And then COVID hit and we started doing Zoom meetings. And finally, you know, I was able to actually really become part of what was going on because I was able to see people and actually hear things properly. And education has always really been my big thing. I I don't feel like our unions do enough to educate people. And there's been some cases in the last little while where we've been so busy. It seems like they're just letting people in off the street, which we need bodies. But at the same time, it doesn't help if they don't know what they're supposed to do when they actually get to set. Yeah. So we started doing like the CAFCAD Cathcademy courses, um, Cathcademy 101, which is just the basics. And we started doing them online and Zooming them. And that got us through COVID, actually, because it was either we were going to, that was going to be the end of CAFCAD. Um, but we came through with flying colors because of the education, which was really pushed by myself and uh, Deanna at the time. So the next year when elections were up, Deanna ran for president and I ran for vice president so that we could kind of keep that momentum going. And we did. And it's been a very successful couple of years. We no longer have satellite members, which is what everybody was. It was like all the Toronto members and then some people, you know, in Vancouver and some people in Calgary. Now it's members across across the board. And we had a screening here in Vancouver last year for the awards. This year we had um, a spring social brunch to celebrate our nominees and our winners from the CAFCAT Awards. We're hoping to have a couple other in-person things happening out here in Vancouver. And it's a new year. So I just got voted in as president. And Farnaz uh, has been voted in as my vice president. And Laura Lee has been voted in as secretary. So we now have three of our four executives from Vancouver. (laughs) It's become very, very Canada-wide. And it's something that I'm super proud of. It's I spent all day yesterday reworking our sponsorship package because we're we're now in the the hunt for sponsorship. That's that's where we are now in order to sort of keep growing and, and keep getting bigger and um, keep improving. We need sponsorship dollars because we're not for profit. So we are reworking our sponsorship package so that, again, we can make it to the end of the year and continue with these CAFCAT awards, which make um, Canada proud. So yeah, good for you. That's amazing. And like, as if you have more time to do this, but like, what a fantastic initiative. And to your point of like, people not feeling thanked, like what a way to sort of do that anyway. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, 
we acknowledge there's so much talent in Canada and we are in LA. LA, I belong to the Television Academy just as a member and they have events all the time. They have screening events, they have little get-togethers, they have Thursday night socials, they have socials for, you know, mixing and mingling and networking with producers and directors and then they also just have socials for the Costume Designers Guild. Then on top of that, if you belong to an agency, if you're represented by an agent, a lot of times your agency also has get-togethers. And of course, the agency you belong to has directors and has producers and has DOPs. So you're meeting the people who do the hiring. But that's in LA. Yeah. And a lot of times it's last minute. A lot of times, like I say, it's on a Thursday night. I can't even if I had the money to fly down to LA every couple of weeks to go to one of these, I can't. I just, I don't have the time. I'm busy. I've got fittings happening. I have this and that going on. I just can't get down there. But the people in LA, the designers in LA get that opportunity constantly. So when somebody is crewing for a show and they're like, oh, I'm going to go up to Vancouver, they just call, you know, Betty, who's that they saw three nights ago and they were chatting to over champagne and she gave them the, her business card. And then they're like, oh, I'll just give her a call, see what she's doing. We do not have that opportunity as Canadians. Uh, we also are at a detriment with our stores. We're losing Nordstrom's. Uh, we don't have anything else. We don't have a proper Saks Fifth Avenue. We don't have a Bloomingdale's. When we're limited to what we can shop, Producers in LA think that we don't have the same style or the same fashion sense as the Americans do. And it's like, no, no, no. You just need to get a shopping in LA, just like they do. They shop first and then come up. All that needs to happen is we go down there for a weekend, we shop down there and we come back up and you'll be fine. But you don't allow us to do that. So now we're relying on shipping things up and what can cross the border because there are some places that won't they won't ship to Canada. So you're already at a bit of a detriment. If you need something tomorrow, you're right. I can't just go down to Macy's and pick it up because we don't have a Macy's. We've got Joe Fresh. I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of the nuances of the Canadian execution of of work and, and costumes and product compared to American productions, like being shot in America. I didn't even think about that. And anybody who comes up here who is an American designer, make sure they shop in L.A. first. And they usually have somebody who is on their crew who is still in L.A. who ships stuff up to them on a regular basis. We usually are not allowed to go down there because usually we're getting the, sh the shows that are less expensive and have less money. So they don't want to send us down there. But also we're not allowed to just go down and shop. We need a permit to do that. And permits are not cheap. They're not inexpensive. And so a lot of times productions like, well, if I'm paying for a permit anyway, I might as well just pay for the American permit to come up as opposed to pay for the Canadian permit to go down to shop to then come back up. Right. Well, listen, if you need a volunteer, I'll go move down there and then I'll just I'll just go to UPS every other day for you. It's a sacrifice, but I'll do it. I'll do Sounds it. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. 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 We have a FedEx for UPS. I mean, we have customs agents, we have brokers, we have all of that stuff. It's just, you know, utilizing the people down there. And sometimes it gets really hard because a lot of times we get paid less than what they get paid down there. And we're being paid Canadian. And you know, we don't complain about it, but 
there is something to be said for hiring somebody who is shopping for you in LA, who is making more than you and probably your assistant combined for their day of shopping. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a, a bit of a hard pill to swallow. You know what? I feel like as Canadians, we've sort of gotten used to it in every way. I know. And maybe we just wear it on the chin pretty good here. <laughs> yeah, we do. And on that note, I mean, um, I think you're doing pretty good, Elisa, with what you've got up here. You know, stuff looks pretty nice. Um, so congrats to you on finishing that season. And I absolutely look forward to seeing season two. And now that I know all of these things, it's going to be so much more interesting to watch um, now that I've kind of got some intel behind the scenes, right, on how it all goes down. And you must be so excited for season two when it's time, whenever that is. Yeah, exactly. I don't mind having a little bit of a break. I don't mind if the uh, strike pushes it a little bit. Hopefully not too much. Uh, We do all need to eat, but a little bit of a break. Never hurt anybody. (laughs) No, and it's a forced break. That's what I keep saying with film. Like, yeah, it's stressful for sure. But I think with COVID, we also learned like maybe we can just find some joy in the pause, right? Um, So that's maybe a blessing in disguise. But yes, hope it doesn't go too long for sure. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you all the best. And we'll be looking out for costumes come season two. Sounds great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I love being here. Thanks, Elisa. All right. Thank you. If you want to learn more about my podcast, you can go to vantropolispodcast.com or you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I always appreciate reviews as well, which you can do on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe, like, or share it with someone you think might be interested in the Vancouver film industry. Or if you work in film, maybe send it to your partner so they know why you're never home.